This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 622, and we welcome Travis West, talking about uh, IEQ Consulting for a Living, and a little follow-up on the Texas Electric Nightmare and the Indoor Environmental Aftermath. Uh, before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can still do the show. Please let our sponsors know you appreciate their support of IAQ Radio Plus. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org, and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at GrayWolfSensing.com, TSI Inc. at TSI.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to John Lapotere, Florida Indoor Air Quality Solutions in Orlando, Florida, who is first to identify the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences as the U.S. government agency whose mission is to discover how the environment affects people in order to promote healthier lives. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, April 16, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI, Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here is today's trivia question. Name the meteorological term defined as synoptic scale low pressure systems that occur in the middle latitudes, i.e. poleward of about 30 degrees latitude, often contain a cold front and have length scales of the order of 500 to 2,500 kilometers. Back to you, Joe. Technical question today, huh? Yeah, it is. Uh, (laughs) All right. Travis West is the president of Building Air Quality, a Houston, Texas indoor air quality consulting firm. He's been in the business for 31 years, over 31 years, doing many different kinds of indoor air quality issues and concerns. And For the past 15 years, he's also worked across the southern United States on environmental health and safety issues for the regional office of the Federal Occupational Health, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that, exactly what that entails. He was investigating building failures in government and leased buildings. Also, thanks to Ice Storm Uri, Travis has been busy chasing water damage from some of the unusual sources, most unusual sources he's seen in many years of investigations. Travis, welcome to IAQ Radio. Thank you very much, Joe. I appreciate it. It's great to have you. We, uh, I've known you for many years, IAQA conferences and summer camp, and uh, you know, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to talk. I don't even know, how did you end up getting involved in the indoor air quality world? Well, honestly, uh, 31, 32 years ago, I was doing drafting work. I was working for an engineering firm in Houston, had a mechanical engineering degree, but because of the series of things that occurred when I first got out of college, I, I didn't go after the engineering training program, and I wound up working as a drafting uh, person doing tenant build-outs for HVAC systems. 
And so, you know, back then you would draw something and if you didn't like it or somebody changed it, you'd have to erase it and redraw it, erase it and redraw it. I got really tired and bored with that stuff. And I thought, God, there's got to be something better. I've been doing this for probably three years, four years at that time. So I called Ashray and I said, hey, what else is out there? Can you tell me if there's anything else that, you know, I could use my skills on? And they said, well, indoor air quality is up and coming. You might look into that. And I thought, what's indoor air quality? So I did some research and turns out that Dr. Richard Shaughnessy at the University of Tulsa was running some indoor air quality programs. Georgia, Georgia State had some indoor or Georgia Tech had some indoor air quality programs. And so I did as much research as I could. And when Shaughnessy had his annual programs that he would run, I would go to those on a regular basis. Finally, I just decided to go out on my own and, and offer indoor air quality consulting to some of the same people I'd been doing design work for uh, on their kind of build outs. That was kind of a natural progression almost. Uh, and you have a, was, a strong mechanical background, which is really helpful, I would assume. Yeah, it's very helpful. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I do have that background. And, you know, people who are in the indoor uh, environmental quality industry, indoor air quality industry, they come from a variety of backgrounds, as you well know. You've got, I run into chemical engineers and industrial hygienists and mechanical engineers and other people who are all doing some facet of indoor air quality. And if they reach a point where they don't know what they're doing, they'll hire a peer who does know and bring in teams of people. And that's what worked for me initially. And that continues to work for me now. Hmm. So that's kind of a, a part of your success in, in doing this for over 30 years, making a nice living at it. I assume you're living down in Houston. We talked before the show, you're moving further West, I guess, soon building a new home. So things have gone pretty well. I wonder what, what kind of things have you seen over the years um, where your competitors or others that may have made notable mistakes um, that you might want to comment on? I don't really want to talk about competitors much because, you know, I can't really say that I've been involved in that many of those issues. But I, I think the big thing that I've learned over the years is that, uh, well, in the early years for that matter, nobody knew what indoor air quality was. And when you would talk to a property manager and say, we do indoor air quality, uh, you know, we do investigations on indoor air quality complaints, People weren't complaining at that at that time in the early 80s and certainly not in the environmental climate for Houston, Texas. But most often what I would find is that if I was called by a building manager, it was because they had tried something on their own and it didn't work and they weren't getting the response that they expected. And and certainly I would go back and talk to the engineer and say, well, what did you do? And they would tell me one, two, three things that they may have done, which in all honesty, sometimes made the problem worse. And without pointing fingers and saying, oh, you guys were stupid for doing this. I tried to train them on what they could have done better, what they should have done. The, the biggest part of, of what I've learned over the years is that you, just because somebody complains doesn't mean you go do the work and say, okay, this should fix it. You actually have to talk to the people. You have to listen to what they say. You have to understand what they, they're saying to truly get a feel for what their complaint is. And that's real eye-opening because if you spend the time doing that, Sometimes they'll answer the question for you or at least lead you in the right direction. It's when a person complains and it comes to a building engineer who says, well, I know what that is. And he goes off and does it and thinks that's going to fix it. We still run into that sometimes because quite honestly, the building engineers who are not trained have been convinced by, let's say, air filter manufacturers or an air filter salesman that you can replace those filters or bump up your filtration to MERV 11 and you won't have any indoor air quality problems. And quite literally, that's they think they're not going to have any indoor air quality problems because they've increased their filtration. But the fact is, oftentimes, it's not necessarily their mechanical system. It might be something the tenant is doing in the space that's causing the problem. And if no one goes and talks to the tenant, you're never going to know that. You know, that's, that's an interesting uh, interesting point you bring up. And I, I, what, I, what I'd like to do maybe is move on for a moment to... Um, some of the kind of interesting projects you've seen over the years, you've been involved in many different kind of, give us one of your more unusual kind of investigation scenarios. Um, well, let me think. I, I, mean, I, I can tell you that we do a lot of proactive surveys of buildings. And one of the first years I did, I've been doing them for 25 years. I have a couple of clients that are really good, but one of the, back at that time, 25 years ago, People would have us because of the cost. They would have us, if you had a 30-story building, they say, well, we want to do the upper half one year, come back the next year, do the lower, or do the even floors one year, the odd floors the next. And so every that way, every two years, we would see the entire building. And during one year's investigation, we wrote the report of some issues that were occurring in the tenant space. And 
about six weeks later, after we delivered our report, property management called me and said, you need to get to this meeting. We've got a problem with this tenant. And I was real surprised that there was a problem with the tenant, but I went to the meeting and on one side of the table, there was the property manager and myself. And on the other side of the table was the human resources director, uh, somebody from their legal department, someone from their facilities department, and three other ladies sitting there. And the property manager said, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Travis took a minute to explain how we did the investigation, what we were looking for. And then she handed out copies of the, the report that applied to this particular tenant to everybody at the table. And as we were talking about a variety of things that the facilities people wanted to know about, one of the three women went, oh my God, my name's in the report. It's like, really? Where? And so we all went to that page and it very clearly said, I don't remember her name, but let's say it's Janice Jones. Very clearly said, Janice Jones' office is a mess. She sits at a cubicle. There are papers and files and folders scattered all across her workspace. There are boxes of files and folders underneath her desk and around her desk. There are foodstuffs at her desk. And she has some personal plants that are overwatered, causing mold to grow on the dirt. And uh, then it went on to say that the people on either side of her, the ladies on either side of her, had the same thing. And then we had a summary statement that said, if this space doesn't get cleaned up, the custodians can't do their job properly. And so you'll have elevated dust and particles in the area. So you could have a chance for upper respiratory concerns, itchy eyes, itchy skin, sneezing, coughing, etc. Not to mention the fact that the mold could cause other issues. As we read that, you could see the three women's faces sort of get flushed and you could see the people on the other side, the legal, the HR and the facilities people go, uh-oh, uh-oh. They quite honestly said to the property manager, I am sorry, it's obviously our mistake. We will get it taken care of so that you can clean the space correctly and then we'll get back to you after that. They got wow. up and they left and it was, it was a cordial meeting. They understood what they were lacking. That property manager turned to me and gave me a high five. I, this is a very reserved woman, but she said, wow, that was great. And she gave me a high five. It turns out a year later, she wound up taking over the head of operations for all 13 buildings in the downtown Houston area. And because of that, she said at that time, we will do 100% of every building every year. And I think that that report that we had, that meeting that we had, was instrumental in my getting that kind of work. Uh, I thought that was real unusual. And I think it really set the tone for a lot of the stuff that I've done since. I think the whole idea of doing proactive surveys, a lot of IEQ consultants out here would be going, Man, I wish I could get people to do proactive types of surveys. It's, sure. it's, uh, it's not easy. Any secrets? Well, I've thought about actually giving a program at the next IEQA um, convention just about that, how to get those things. I mean, the, the real secret is, number one, you're going to have to do it with Class A properties because a Class B, Class C property, they're not going to have the money. They're not going to have the staff. They're not going to be able to do that. But the Class A properties are the ones that I go after. And I yeah. think it's important to find Class A properties with really deep pockets. So those are the people that have the time to say, what's my exposure? If someone gets sick in my building and we don't respond in a timely manner, how could we be sued? What could it wind up costing us? And I think when they start having that conversation in their head, then they start to say, how can I prevent this from happening? Um, a lot of the proactive stuff that we do is really, I mean, the way I sell it, the way I used to sell it, should, I should say, was really based on the asbestos industry. I mean, you know, a building may have had asbestos, but it wasn't friable. And so property managers would go out and test the building, air test the building every six months, just to make sure they weren't having any issues. If they ever did get caught and they had an issue, at least they could go to the courts and say, look, we've been doing it proactively. We've got six months, six months, six months for the last six years. We've been trying to stay ahead of it. We might have missed it once, but we've been trying to stay ahead of it. And I think the courts would look more friendly upon them based on that. And I sort of even used that approach. Even though they weren't required at that time to do anything, right? Right, right. But they were being proactive because they wanted to lay the groundwork in case the problem occurred. And that is really what's been driving what I wind up selling to people is the fact that you can be reactive if you'd like. And certainly a lot of people are. But what's it going to cost you in the long run versus... If you're proactive, you can really lay some good groundwork for yourself as being a responsible um, community, a responsible citizen, a responsible company, corporate right. responsibility. And it doesn't have to be that terribly expensive to do this, does it, Travis? Well, I'm not doing it cheap, I'll tell you that, Joe. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I won't say it has to be that expensive, but I, I can tell you that, that um, in fact, next week, we are walking three buildings, a 36th floor, a 34th floor, and a 50th floor. 
it's going to take us all five days of next week to walk every floor, every tenant occupied space and review every air handler in those three buildings. Uh, it's worthwhile. It's definitely worthwhile. And I consider it very good money because it's not hard work. You're not interviewing people. You're not dealing with folks who are, you know, stressed or not feeling well in the building. You're just walking through looking for a potential problem before it actually rears its head and hopefully solving it before anything does occur. Interesting. Hey, you, you talk to a lot of people in the industry. You're very active at IAQA and summer camp, and you used to be the chapter director there in Houston. Yeah. How are um, other IEQ consultants doing over the last year with the COVID issue? Is it business way down? Is it kind of, you know, struggling, but still going okay? The, uh, it's interesting. The friends that I've made through IAQA, there are several large corporations that are, you know, they're either, um, what's the word? Well, they, they work for the insurance industry on the one hand, or I actually have a very good friend who has a business similar to mine, except that he has five people working for him doing indoor quality investigations. I think we're all staying fairly busy. Uh, I'm as busy as I want to be. You know, I mean, I'll go five days next week and then I won't have anything for two weeks. That gives me time to write reports. I may have one or two other things pop up. In general terms, the peers that I know from the IAQ programs are staying busy. They're not as busy as they were in 2019, but they're probably at 50 to 60% of their capacity. I do have some friends who are also doing COVID consulting and see, I don't do that. I don't, I don't do any of the COVID consulting. And there are a lot of commercial buildings that need help in that respect. And, and those guys are staying busier than the rest of us. But that's, a, that's an expense I don't want. That's an exposure I don't want. So I stayed away from that. Let's, I want to come back to that. You know what, let me get one more question before we go over and talk a little bit about, you know, the, the recent nightmare that occurred down in, uh, in Houston and, and in Texas in general. Yeah. yeah. Um, I noticed when, when I was preparing for the interview, I looked at it and I don't ever remember you having any initials behind your name that you, did you ever use some kind of certification? Go after something. What's your thoughts on, on the whole certification thing? I, I do use certifications. I, I started with the CIE when IAQA started with it. I took the training many years ago, and then I transitioned that over to a CIEC, which is monitored by the American Council for Accredited Certification. I have that, and that's all I have. And then I also have a license, a state license, so I'm licensed by the state of Texas as a mold assessment consultant. And those are the only two things that I really need. You just don't use it behind your name, though, that often, huh? Well, I use it on reports. But that's okay. it. Um, you know, I don't put it on my business card. I suppose I might, you know, but I've got about 5,000 business cards. I'll probably retire before I run out of business cards. So I guess it's not going to be on my cards. <laughs> hey, Cliff, you got any follow-ups before we move on to the uh, the water issues down in Texas right now? Uh, no, I'm good, Jeff. Thanks. All right. Now, we know that Texas had that massive power outage, although in talking to you, I understand it wasn't everybody. You actually got through it without the uh, power going down in your little community there. Can you give listeners a little idea of how things are going now since the power outage, how long it lasted in general, and um, where we're at today? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, anecdotally, I can tell you that. I don't really know the date specifically, but I, I do know that when it happened, my wife and I were watching television and we were watching all the, the images of the grid going down here, going down there and so forth. And my wife was on Facebook with her friends. She has a group of Bunko friends from church. And so they're scattered throughout this woodlands area, the woodlands, which is where we live. And, and I would say if she had probably 10 ladies, my, my wife included her nine friends of her nine friends, I would say every one of them lost power for anywhere from three hours to two days. Um, we are fortunate Kay and I are fortunate in that the house that we bought 36 years ago is right across the street from a senior center, and it's a critical care senior center, and I think we're on the same grid system as them. There are townhouses that back up to that senior center that were built 15 years after it was, after it was built, and as, as the power, when the power was going down, I was out walking around the neighborhood because we have walking paths and I needed the exercise, and I noticed that those townhouses had no power for three days, and yet the senior center had power and we had power. We didn't lose power day one. We did not lose power at all. But we're not, you know, we're much more fortunate than anyone else. I mean, some of our friends here in the woodlands, the other nine Bunko ladies all lost power to some degree. Entire communities lost power for anywhere from, from half a day to 
six or seven days. It was surprising that we would see things on television a week later that said power's coming back on for apartment complexes. We thought everybody had their power back on. Unfortunately, those apartment complexes without power wound up with frozen pipes. And so people had to move out of those apartment complexes because the pipes froze on day three or four or five, driving people out of those apartment complexes. And a lot of the pipes in Texas, if I understand this correctly, are above the ceiling. That's right. Yeah. When they build houses down here, because, you know, we're in a, we're in a hot and humid environment and it's never going to freeze down here. And if it does, it's only going to freeze for 30 minutes to a day and not even a day. I mean, for us, a freeze is 26 degrees. So yeah, I mean, when it got down to 10, some places got down to seven going across the state, the temperature dropped, you know, the wind chill was unbelievable, but that doesn't affect the, the pipes. But yeah, to answer your question, those pipes are above the ceiling. I have a two-story house. My pipes are above the ceiling. An interesting story. My wife said on the second day of the freeze, she said, you better go check those pipes in the attic. And I was like, eh, we've got power. What am I worried about? And I thought, oh, okay. And by the third day, I was like, okay, maybe I need to go check those pipes. I have a thermal image camera. Literally, I would run the water at the faucet in the, in the bathroom on the first floor. And it was like 47 degrees. And I thought, okay, I'm okay. Same thing in the kitchen at the other end of the house. I was still 47 degrees. I thought, I'm okay. Finally, on the third day of the freeze, when people all around us were dropping like flies and pipes were freezing, I went up in the attic. And there's a set of stairs, a pull down stairs. You get up there. And when, when I get to the top of the attic, and I hadn't been there in probably six months and didn't remember this, but there was a sheet of paper, eight and a half by 11, that I had stapled to a rafter up there. And it was, let me back up and say, in 2012, I had a blower door test done at my house, which nobody does in Texas because they don't care if it leaks. And at that time, they said, we can seal up certain things, but you need some more insulation. I said, fine, let's put insulation up there. And so I bought insulation. They blew in another 10 inches of insulation. So I had an R36 in my attic. It turns out that all my pipes were seven or eight inches below the top of the insulation. So all my pipes were fully insulated. I came down there feeling so proud of myself. And when I did, I said, you wouldn't believe it. Look, look what I did. She, my wife looked at me, honestly, you know, as wife's doing And she said, dumb luck. <laughs> she's right it was dumb luck so we didn't experience what most other people did now do you have a, a slab on grade or do you have a basement is no, we're slab, slab on grade and that's probably i would imagine fairly common in texas very common yeah it is very common especially in the houston area because we've got some kind of a clay that when it uh, when it rains the clay can swell and 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 then as it heats up the clay can dry out and so we may have slab cracks because of that swelling and drying, but uh, we certainly can't have or shouldn't have basements here. What about your commercial customers? How, how do they withstand that, you know, the, the electric outage? I assume some probably had backup electric, but probably not most. Most of the ones in the central business district of Houston did not have backup power. I mean, some of them have backup power, but it's emergency service. It's only last designed to last you know, 10 or 12 hours, maybe get them mm -hmm. a day. And the power was down for quite a while. Um, interesting that the first, probably by the second night, um, and I don't know if this was planned or what, but the, the next morning there were a lot of reports on television about the central business district. They said people all around the city were without power. And yet they showed these photos of all the high rises downtown completely lit up. And I don't know if property managers turn their lights on to keep their buildings warm or what, but the CBD and all those high rise managers really took it on the chin in public opinion. And by the third night, the city of downtown Houston was dark because of that. Uh, a lot of property managers did lose pipes and it was things that they couldn't control. They just had no control over, over pipes that were breaking. What kind of projects did you end up doing? Uh, unusual, maybe types of yeah, situations? You know, what's unusual. You, you think about water pipes breaking and, and certainly that's a consideration. And I saw a lot of that, but the two things that I saw most of uh, on the one hand, it had to do with fire sprinklers because fire sprinklers are tied into the city water. They're not necessarily tied into the building water. And oftentimes because the pipe was close enough to the outdoors, that city water would freeze and it would force the fire sprinkler heads to freeze. Um, I, I chased one in a commercial building in Corpus Christi. This was a federal facility on the fifth floor. And of all places, the fire sprinkler broke in a server room worst place of all. Oh. And I was there three days later and I saw videos of people with squeegees trying to pour six inches of water into the stairwell so it would go down and out of the building. 
it devastated that office. Um, wow. And I did another, I did a hospital building also where it had a soffit on the outside, an exterior soffit, and they had fire sprinklers on the soffit. Well, when the flood occurred, the alarms went off in the medical building, building engineer got down there and shut everything off, but the water didn't stop. He didn't know what it was. It took him another hour to find out that it was coming from a broken sprinkler head in the soffit. But instead of spraying water outside of the building, that water was running back into the building by way of the soffit and dumping into the third floor. And the water kind of flooded the third, but then really flooded the second, the first, and the basement. So that was unusual. Fire sprinklers were a real issue for a lot of people. Were there enough contractors to respond to all the water damage issues that occurred after this? You know, I, I haven't talked to the water restoration people as much because I was busy running other things. But in many cases, no. I mean, a lot of the big companies had their cat people out. But I did get calls from three or four, well, three specifically property managers. And when I went out with my thermal camera, I said, you know, things aren't drying very well. And this is a week later. And he said, yeah, the water restoration guys said that they don't have the equipment, but they'll bring it to me when they can. I said, well, I, you know, honestly, some of these lower walls, they hadn't even in these, these buildings, they hadn't peeled back the cold base. They weren't blowing fans. They didn't drill and dry. I said, you know, you're going to have to cut the sheetrock out because it hasn't dried fast enough and you've probably got biologicals on the inside wall. So to answer your question, I don't think there was enough equipment. I, I, even the cat teams were running equipment here from out of state and they still didn't have enough equipment. Hmm. Cliff, you got a follow up? Um, no, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Okay. Um, I'm wondering, you know, with, with your commercial buildings, if, if they didn't have the resources or didn't have it, well, let's, let's do this. A lot of restoration companies try to pre-establish relationships with large customers like yours. Right. Um, did some of your building owners have these pre-established relationships and did it help them to have that pre-established relationship when it came time to respond to this issue? Yeah, certainly. A lot of the, a lot of the class A properties, they have those relationships and it did help. Uh, it was, you know, some of the other buildings in the suburbs are still class A buildings, but they're suburb buildings. They're owned by smaller management companies. They still have a relationship, but the honest fact was there just wasn't enough equipment to get around to those smaller buildings. And, I, I, you know, I, I think that the, the guy who's got three floors in, a, in an 80,000 square foot building, even though it's a class A building, he's got a good relationship. He didn't take a precedence to the guy that's got 15 floors in a 60 story building. And, you know, the, the water restoration guys knew they had a big serious issue at that at the larger building and they went at it. Unfortunately, the guys in the smaller buildings sometimes suffered. And that's not to say there's anything wrong with the water restoration guys. He just didn't have enough people and couldn't respond quick enough. You know, I'm wondering if in the press, you know, you, I'm sure you watch you know, the news and, and, and read some papers and so on. How is, how's the press responding? And is there still, you know, articles and, and you know, spots on TV about the, the problems that have occurred as a result of this? You know, I, there were a few things regarding uh, moisture and mold in, in residential settings and apartment complexes and, and uh, high-rise buildings but not a lot. I think apartment complexes are the ones that have gotten the most interest because when you have a broken pipe, it displaces numerous families. And if you've got a four-story, five-story apartment complex, that water's going down because it's usually in the attic and it's, it's messing with a lot of lives. And those people have to find somewhere else to live. So I think we will still see those stories for some time until people, until they get those spaces rebuilt and people move back in. So there are a lot of people who are still in hotels and motels who've been displaced from apartment complexes. Yeah. You know, Texas has, as if I recall correctly, they have a licensing law for mold. Now the mold claims and the mold concerns might not have, you know, progressed as far along right now as the instant need for water damage restoration. But mm -hmm. um, is Texas going to waive the licensing requirements or are they still going to require that anyone that does an inspection have some kind of license? I don't know. Uh, you know, that's that's obviously left up to the governor. When we had uh, the most recent storm was, I think, Tropical, not uh, um, Harvey, when Tropical Storm Harvey came through, um, the governor waived a lot of things and said, you don't have to be licensed in the state for 90 days. But then they never they never lifted that for like a year and a half, as I understand it. I, I don't monitor that stuff regularly because I'm busy doing my own thing. But 
I don't think that they've made any changes to the rules now in response to Tropical Storm Uri, Ice Storm Uri. Um, not that I'm aware of, but I don't know for sure, Joe, honestly. And it could still happen, I guess, depending on how many, you know, how big of a problem it becomes. But I think you've got to, you know, going back to our discussion of the whole IEQ consulting industry and Sometimes I wonder if there is an IEQ consulting industry or there's just a mold industry. Right. Um, you know, you've got a lot of people, though, that are licensed to do mold work in Texas, right? Yeah, I don't know what the number is. It's like 300, 350, roughly, scattered around the state. And uh, I know that when the governor released those rules or waived those rules after that last trap, big tropical storm, there were a lot of people upset with them. And then they were talking, after that, they were talking about doing away with the Texas mold rules which is crazy. I mean, not having rules got us in this situation back in 2000, uh, back when they called it the Texas mold rush as opposed to gold rush. Um, yep, yep. That got us in that position. I don't know why in the world they would, they would do away with those. And I hope they don't, but oh well, if they do, they do. There's nothing. It could still happen, I guess. Hey, we've got to stop and uh, thank our sponsors for halftime. We'll be back with the second half with Travis West. We're talking about IEQ consulting for a living and, a little follow-up of the Texas Electric Nightmare and the Indoor Environmental Aftermath. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World at AIHA.org, ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, at ACGIH.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, at CIRIScience.org, The Indoor Air Quality Association, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry at iicrc.org and Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, November 9 through 11 at hb2021-america.org. IAQ Radio industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at aemlinc.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable, short-term, and continuous monitoring at GrayWolfSensing.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at HealthyIndoors.com. Okay, we're back to the second half with Travis West. And Cliff, I want to turn it over to you. Yeah, with what we've seen on television, and I know a couple of people that uh, live down there, and... Uh, you know, there was not enough equipment. There were not enough responders. And it just seems to me that while everyone did their best, people that had insurance in buildings, they would call, they would turn in the claim, they would try to get a responder. And in many situations, uh, these people were told, you know, we can't get out there for a week. You know, we've got hundreds of people that are ahead of you. We're working with everyone in line. And I think by the time they get out, uh, it would seem to me that mold, uh, you know, had a great advantage, had a great opportunity 
uh, you know, to grow. So I suspect, number one, you're probably going to see a lot of that. And I guess what's even worse is I'm not sure who's going to pay for it. You know, when you think about it, uh, you know, people turned in the claim. Uh, they, they did the right thing, which was, you know, try to respond. They just couldn't get anybody to respond to it. And you have this hidden damage, which is going to, uh, you know, people probably don't even realize that they have it. So I was just wondering if you could comment on it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you 110% on all of that, Cliff. Um, I was uh, doing some work uh, this week in South Texas, and, and I was doing it on behalf of an attorney. And the other side had their mold consultant there, somebody that I'd heard of but never never actually met. And I had a nice time over overseeing what he was doing, but, you know, talking to him about it. And he said, I've had trouble getting out to this project. We had to cancel three times because he couldn't show up. And and I said, are you been feeling okay? He's like, nah, it's not a matter of that. He said, I've got hundreds of people calling me every week, trying to get me out there to do mold sampling in their houses. They didn't get their house dried in time or they got their house dried, but they've gone back and done research or someone said, Hey, didn't they cut anything out? Didn't they drill and dry? Now these people are having all these doubts. And this poor guy, he, he's beside himself. He's a one-man show like I am for the most part. He can't be everywhere at one time. And, and so, you know, that conversation I had with him really gave a lot of credence to what you're saying. There are a lot of people out there who are trying to, in this case, trying to get their house tested for mold. And these are residential clients. And they can't, they can't even find a guy to do the, the testing for them. Yeah, let alone the actual remediation. That's oh, yeah. 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 Hey, I'm wondering, Travis, you know, oftentimes after these types of events, we get the, you know, the scam artists that come in and uh, take advantage of people during this difficult period. Have you seen much of that? Uh, no, not really. No, I, I mean, I, you know, my perspective is limited because I, I deal with the clients I deal with. I don't, I don't get outside of my, my avenue much. So honestly, I'm in the commercial side. The answer would be no, I don't really see that. And because I don't do much residential at all, in fact, I, I avoid residential at all costs, so I can't really offer an opinion on that. Why do you avoid residential? You know, I learned this early on, Joe, and, it's, and I'll try not to go crazy on this, but, you know, in, in those early years, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, I wanted to be everything for everybody. And so, you know, I did some advertising, let people know I did indoor air quality, and it did not bring in property managers the way I hoped, and it did bring in consumers. And a consumer would call and you'd listen to her talk about what her problems were or his problems were. And you'd listen to him for 15 or 20 minutes and you say, well, I can certainly come out and try and help you on that. It's going to cost. And at that time I would probably say something like it's going to cost at least $500 for me to come out and do some sampling for you. And they're like, Oh, I can't do that. Click. And I just wasted 15 minutes. Sometimes I wasted 30 minutes talking to these people, lending a sympathetic ear and they didn't have the budget. I would say it was probably about three years before I caught on to the fact that I didn't want to do residential for a couple of reasons. One, there's never a budget. And two, it's pretty emotional. Compare that to the commercial property manager who's always got a budget. He's always concerned about a liability. And he's a professional person that I would rather deal with than to deal with someone who's more emotional. And so I just made a decision. Oh, that would have been 1991 or so to just go after commercial people. Hmm. You know, You've been responding to these types of things for 30 years or so. How is this one different from other water damage events that you've seen over the past 30 years? Well, the ones I've seen over the past 30 years have been hurricane-related or tropical storm-related. And when that happens, when there's a tropical storm headed to New Orleans or a tropical storm headed to Houston, everybody around the country has their cat teams, and they're moving their cat teams down in that direction. They're either going, because they don't know where it's going to land, they're either going to New Orleans or they're going to somewhere in Florida, they're going to, you know, wherever they think it's going to go, the cat teams are headed that way. And a day or two later, on the outskirts of town where I live, you will see entire semis of equipment lined up in a Costco parking lot so that they can distribute materials and, and equipment out to the various projects throughout the city. We didn't have that now. I mean, we had the local companies, the big movers here that have their own cat teams, but cat teams from out of town couldn't get here in time Maybe they're here now. I don't know. I haven't really seen any, but there just wasn't enough equipment for that very reason. So the difference is that when we have a hurricane, when we have a tropical storm, people anticipate that and the cat teams are moving from all around the country to the location where they think it's going to hit. With the ice storm, nobody knew the kind of damage we were going to experience. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think of it that way, but that's that's a really good point. It just 
happened with no warning and normally with a hurricane you know, for three, four days at least, maybe a week before they're tracking it and, you know, people are setting they're up. Staging. Yeah, yeah, they're staging. Yeah, I'm glad, uh, glad Cliff put that question in there. Uh, yeah. One more on that, and then I'd like to switch back over to the whole IEQ consulting thing. How are people responding now to the whole electric grid thing? I mean, is <laughs> are people upset? Are they thinking, are they blaming the government? Are they blaming themselves for not, you know, uh, pushing to do something different? How's that working out? I'm not sure it's people who, who are blaming themselves. I think people are blaming the government. Uh, there were hearings probably a week later after after the whole thing, had, you know, after the power was back on, there were hearings uh, and they obviously the, the government invited ERCOT, which is the environmental resource group that runs the the grid system, uh, decides where it goes, where the power goes and everything. Anyway, there were these state hearings and, and a local reporter made a good analysis of this thing. You know, you, you invite ERCOT to it, you invite all the politicians who were overseeing groups like ERCOT. And they were all testifying. And then you invite the individual operators who have power plants scattered around the state, whose job it is to feed that power to a grid that ERCOT then distributes out. When these individual operators showed up and sat in front of the testimony, they literally said, we're sorry. We thought we had prepared properly, but we weren't prepared for the kind of cold that you had. Consequently, our plant went down. Things froze on our plant and we weren't well enough prepared. We thought we were prepared, but we weren't. They apologized for what they didn't do. And then they brought the ERCOT people up who said, well, it's not our fault. It was always somebody else. And you brought the, the state legislators up and they said, well, it wasn't our fault. It was always somebody else. This reporter made a really good uh, evaluation of that, saying the people at the ground level, the ones that own and operate the plants, they fessed up. They said, we made a mistake. We apologize. We'll do better next time. But everybody who was in control, the ERCOT people and all the state legislators, all said it was somebody else's fault. Hmm. I think a lot of people in the state are very upset about that, and I think it'll continue to be a major issue until Texas gets this crap corrected. Interesting. Very interesting, Travis. Hey, let's let's go back to some of your commercial consulting. And you know, uh, I, you sent some photos for. You know, we always ask for a headshot, and you sent one that really caught my attention. And and I think John can pull it up. I, I wonder if you could take a minute and just kind of explain to listeners what you were doing on this particular project i just find it very interesting there we go <laughs> that's a beauty <laughs> no i can't tell you anything about that no, no, no but, i'm kidding um <laughs> that was that was a number of years ago well probably 10 years ago in in the you know houston has the largest medical center in the entire world and within that medical center is the largest cancer care center in the world yeah, a place called md anderson and MD Anderson had a couple of buildings. Well, they had one particular building that was very old that they wanted to implode. They needed to drop that building right where it was. Unfortunately, that building was right next to a, another hospital that they owned that had 25 or 30 surgery centers, critical care, cancer surgery centers. And they wanted to make sure that them dropping the building in the one location did not have any impact on the air quality in any of those surgical suites. And I, I don't remember the number. It might have been 28 surgical suites. It might have been 30. But the, the fact is that when we met with MD Anderson, they said that the thing they wanted to do was to measure airborne particulate levels in the operating rooms before the building next door dropped. And this building was 15 feet away. They wanted to do it while the building dropped, and they wanted to do it after the building dropped. And that required us going out and getting 25 laser particle counters and making sure they were all operating Finding 25 laser particle counters was a monumental task. I mean, quite literally, it took me three months to get staged for that, to get the manufacturer to commit to get me 25 of these units, in addition to the two that I had and two more that I could borrow. We set a laser particle counter up. We took a sample. I want to say it was every minute. It might have been every, yeah, it was probably every minute, to every two minutes. Plugged them in and turned them on, and we left. And we literally had to leave the building that was next the, with the surgery centers, walk past the one that was being imploded and go about a block and a half away. And we sat there for five hours waiting for them to implode the building. And over the course of time, you know, there's always, okay, it's going to happen at nine. And then we're all standing with our faces pressed against the window at 9 a.m. And it didn't happen. They, they went on the radio and said, it's going to be 9.15. It 
this went on and on until about 1130. And finally, the building was imploded. And it was amazing to watch. Boom, 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 and then boom, boom, boom. And here's this 20-story building dropping straight down. Didn't go into the other building, went straight down. And then within about 30 seconds, the cloud of dust came to the building where we were, a, you know, a block and a half away. We couldn't go outside for about half an hour. It took that long for the dust to float away to make sure the outdoor levels were okay. And then we worked our way over to the surgery centers to make sure all of our equipment was running. Then we had to leave that equipment running for another four hours so they could see what was going on. We downloaded the data and although we saw an elevated level of particles when the building implosion occurred, you know, when the, when the concussion of the building occurred because it was affecting the walls where the surgery centers were, the particle counts went back down to where they should have been within an hour. And we were amazed at that, but at least we knew. And it had to do with the combination of the air conditioning systems, filtrations working properly, the delivery of filtered outdoor air into the surgery centers and so on. So this was a real fun project. It was, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you, you spend three months in this case for, to prepare for something that happens over the course of 30 seconds. Um, wow. But it was great. I enjoyed it. They, it was a very, a very unique and unusual project. Uh, you got, I got like 10 follow-ups here now. All right. Number oh. one, did they pay you to buy all these or did you rent? particle counters. Yeah. Do you still have 30 particle counters sitting no, around? No. Somewhere, Travis? <laughs> no, I don't. No, they didn't pay me. I actually had to negotiate with the manufacturer who's not one of your sponsors of the show. I had to negotiate with the manufacturer and say, look, I need these 30 particle counters. And they said, well, okay, we don't have that many. I said, can you find them? They said, no, we can't. We're going to have to make them. Uh, what we wound up doing was I wound up getting the hospital to guarantee money to the general contractor, which is who I was, I was working for. The GC then paid me just enough to, in advance, to rent those. It was like $35,000. Well, it wasn't that much. It was, I don't know what it was. It was like, let's say it was ten dollars to $12,000. I needed to have to the people who manufactured the particle counters as a guarantee that we would use them and that we would rent them for that period of time. We had them for a week. And they made twelve or $15,000, whatever that number was, to rent those laser particle counters for a week. When the manufacturer got those all back, then they sold them for, I guess, 80% of the new price because they'd been used on a project. But... It was a win-win for everybody. We got what we needed. The GC was taken care of. Uh, MD Anderson had their data, and the particle manufacturer had a bunch of good sales there over the course of the next few weeks. Hey, John, can you put that picture back up real quick? So in this picture, I'd, I'd like if you would to explain, what, what's with all the hanging Tygon tubing behind you there? Did you have like six or seven set up in one area? No, no. If you look at the at the back bottom right corner of that, you can see the laser particle counter back I there. I see that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the only thing we had. We had that in there. Now, in some in some um, operating suites, it was in the center of the suite, uh, but in most cases, it was around near a perimeter. Uh, those hoses at the top are all the different hoses that they have coming into the operating center. I don't oh, know what they okay. are. You know, oxygen obviously is one of those, but uh, you know, I don't know what else is in there. A little bit of everything. I see. Yeah. I see. Now, the other question I have is, in addition, I assume they, they, they shut down their mechanical system or at least shut down the outdoor air, uh, probably, you know, made sure they had clean filters. What other kind of things can you do to try and, you know, um, lower the particle counts when they're blowing up a building next door? You know, there's not a lot else you could do. I mean, shutting off the outdoor air, in fact, I think they even turned off the air handlers for some period of time. They were all remote controlled probably for an hour. You know, I mentioned it, it took, it took uh, some time for the cloud of dust to leave us. Fortunately, the cloud of dust did not go towards the building. Yes, the wind was blowing in such, and that might've been what delayed the implosion. They might've been waiting for the wind to make sure that it was blowing it towards us. We were part of the health and safety team. And, and I literally have a vest, a reflective vest that says, MD Anderson implosion implosion team on the back, but I had to, I had to keep that because it's so cool. Oh, uh, but other than shutting down the outdoor air and turning off the air handlers in those rooms at that time, I don't think there's much else that they could have done. Excuse me. They were prepared to send all of their custodial people in there and do all the cleaning necessary or clean the air ducts if they had to. But honestly, the numbers that we saw when the implosion occurred had to do with ceiling tiles that were jostling and and I don't know where else the dust came from. That wasn't for me to determine. That was up to MD Anderson. But the fact is that there really wasn't much there. 
and they didn't have to evacuate, or I assume they probably had to remove some people from the building just because they were worried about that building falling on the other one, right? Oh yeah, that that building was pretty much empty because it was a it was a I don't know a ten story building roughly, and it's primarily a surgery center, so they really didn't, other than the occasional doctor's office, probably on the on the far side, they really didn't have any people in there. Interesting project, Travis. Very interesting. You know, Joe, Joe, something interesting. You remember Bob Baker. And Bob Baker used to be the facility manager for that group. Yes, sir. Many years ago, he was facility manager for MD Anderson. And unfortunately, Bob has passed, but I remember having him on the show. And he told us, you know, at the beginning of every show, I asked, how did you get involved in this? And and his his driving force for getting involved in, in HVAC systems cleanliness was that he had uh, been in charge of mechanical systems, and they had four, I believe it was four cases of aspergillosis in an operating suite that he eventually was tracked down to his mechanical system, and he said that for the rest of his life, he was going to make darn sure that he did everything he could to make sure those mechanical systems were properly maintained and, and cleaned sure. and so on, so... Uh, great guy, Bob Baker. If you get a chance, folks, go back and listen to the Bob Baker shows. I've had him on a few times. All right. Let's some good conversations. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I said Bob and I have had, had some good conversations about his days doing that. Good man. All right. Let's yeah. go to the roundup, John. You know, you do this forensic reviews of federally occupied buildings. And that's, I think that's something a lot of people don't even realize exists. Um, tell us a little bit about what that is, Travis. Well, um, take Houston, Texas, for example. There are probably, I, I don't know the number, but let me throw out a number, probably about 85 to 100 leases or federally owned buildings. Either they're federally owned and occupied or it's a federal agency that's within a corporate, uh, in, in a high rise somewhere you know, well over 100 leases in buildings around the Houston area for federal agencies. I mean, if you're at an airport, you've got TSA, you've got DEA, you've got other groups like that. Each of them has their own separate lease. If you get out away from an airport, you're going to find DEA facilities or FBI, or you're going to find other facilities elsewhere. You've always got a courthouse, a federal courthouse. Sometimes you have a federal building that's different than a federal courthouse. There are a lot of buildings out there, and there are a lot of people out there. And uh, for the past 17 years, I have been doing as a contractor, I've been doing indoor environmental surveys for Federal Occupational Health, U.S. Public Health Service, in federally occupied spaces. And what that involves is somebody in a, in a federal space doesn't feel well. They come into work, they don't feel good. They go home, they feel better. They go out to lunch, they feel good. They come back in, they don't feel good. Typical indoor air quality complaints. And it takes a little more time because they complain to their supervisor who complains to the lessing their their agency group who complains to somebody else, eventually it finds its way to FOH and eventually comes down to me. Um, when I started, I was one of several contractors in the, I think this is region four that did the work. Since that time, a couple of them have retired and I'm one of maybe two guys in region four that does it. I'm designated as a subject matter expert on indoor air quality and indoor environmental quality. So if somebody complains in Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, or New Mexico, there's a chance I might get the call. So these are all reactive or do they also do some proactive work? These are all reactive. Yeah. Yeah. There's, they're all reactive surveys. How would other people that do this, you know, they're in the indoor air quality consulting world. I mean, how do you, how do you make the connection to get involved in that? You know, I happen to be uh, involved in a social security building 17 years ago, working on behalf of the building owner. Social security buildings are usually freestanding buildings. And even though they've got only SSA people in there, those buildings are owned by someone else. They're owned by a third party who then leases it to SSA. And there was a problem with mold in one in North Texas. And through the grapevine, the owner heard about me. He asked if I would come and look at it. And I said, sure. I was surprised to see there was already another consultant there, which happened to be FOH at the time, Federal Occupational Health. I did my survey. They were looking over my shoulder the whole time. I wrote the scope on how to remove the mold. They were looking over my shoulder the whole time. After all the work was done, I came back and did the testing. They not only looked over my shoulder, but did their own series of testing. And then I wrote my report. About six weeks after that, we had another problem in a second social security building owned by the same guy, went through the same process again. 
about six months after that, I got a call from Federal Occupational Health saying, we like your work ethic. We like that you don't, you know, you don't scare people with, with saying, oh, it's mold, mold, run, run, run. You're right. more down to earth with the common sense. Stuff. Yeah, the black mold stuff. And they said, would you be interested in doing these kinds of surveys for us? And I said, well, certainly. I mean, I'm not going to turn anybody away. Hmm. It was, you know, a couple of SSA buildings here and there. And then suddenly it was an FBI facility and suddenly it was something else. And over the years, it's just developed into something really amazing for me. And that FOH, what does what does that stand for again? Federal Occupational Health. Federal Occupational Health. So they're a part of what the Department of Health and Human Services. I think so. Uh, I don't okay. know exactly which agency they're with. The only ones I deal with really are FOH. Um, and do they put out like a request for proposal, or do they just they tell you, hey, huh. this is this is who we want? Yeah, yeah. They just say this is who we want. Um, Actually, they because I'm on their list. I don't know what's going on with my, my green screen. Because I'm I'm on their list, they just automatically call me. Cliff, yeah, uh, Travis. It seems that, from my perspective, maybe that some of the mold business is is going away, and that industrial hygienists are looking for new ground. And it seems that they've discovered fire damage. And I think it started out on the West Coast with wildfires. And all of a sudden, there's this tremendous interest uh, by industrial hygienists in getting involved with industry standards and so on and so forth. And I just wonder uh, whether you've done any uh, this type of work, uh, whether you see that as a um, potential opportunity uh, you know, for these folks, uh, any cautionary tales? No, I, I don't really have any cautionary tales. I, I certainly think there's an opportunity for some people, but in, I can, I, I honestly believe that in Texas it's limited. Um, we had some serious fires all around the Southern part of the state five, five to eight years ago. I don't know exactly when it was that leveled an awful lot of property, some very close to me. And I have some friends who were burned out of their houses. Uh, it's because we had such a bad drought that year and, you know, everything was just a tinderbox. They're talking about a big drought this year, too. I don't know. I guess we'll see. Uh, I'm, most of the people that I work with, in fact, very few of the people that I that I know, my peers doing indoor air quality are involved in doing that because it's not something we consistently see. I guess if we're in California, we might. But in Texas, we don't seem to have that problem on a large scale. So, excuse me, I haven't seen a lot of people going after the wildfire work. Let me uh, finish up with this, Travis. What are your thoughts on the future of IEQ profession, number one? And is it something you would suggest young people get involved in? Yeah, I, you know, I, you asked me that. You told me that you were going to ask me that question, and I'm, I've got mixed, mixed emotions on that. I would say, yes, it's certainly something you need to get. We need to get younger people involved because I've been around a long time, and I'm not getting any younger, and I'm not going to be here in a couple of years. I've got a lot of peers and uh, my closest friend, Rick Anderson, he's three years younger than me. And he's talking about retiring about the same time I retire. And, and um, he's got a group of people, five or six guys that work for him and they're all in their fifties to sixties. So, you know, unfortunately I think the average age is, is pretty high right now. I don't think it's bad. What I, if I can be precautionary at all. Uh, and I don't know, I, you know, we're talking to a select group of people here who are on, on online interested in learning. Um, there are a lot of people in Texas who go out and get their mold license and they advertise on their business card. I do indoor air quality. In fact, I'm working with one right now and, and I've had to bring them along slowly. We were at a CEU class together and, and I said, come on with me on an indoor air quality project. And I took him on one of the surveys of a high rise building last year. He said, which mold equipment do I need? I was like, no, we're doing indoor air quality. He goes, yeah, mold. I was like, no. Indoor air quality, chemicals, particles, biologicals, and mold is one tiny little biological. I guess you're going to learn here, Justin. And so Justin came along with me, and he really learned. Why are we carrying this instrument? What are TVOCs? You know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if someone's going to jump into this industry, if you've already got a good background in mold, don't say you do indoor air quality. Just say you do mold. Go get the training. I'm a big one on training. Go to meetings, go to regional meetings, go to local meetings, go to state meetings, go to the national meetings, learn about indoor air quality. It's entirely different than mold. When I started going to courses years ago, the programs that Richard Shaughnessy brought on, he would bring on Bill Turner, he would bring on Bud Offerman, he would bring on Terry Brennan, Marilyn Black. I mean, these are all people who, some are not still in the industry, but most of them, some of them still are. 
they didn't talk about mold very often. They talked about chemicals and particles and bacteria, but you know, at the time, mold wasn't driving the industry. I learned about chemicals and the influence they have on indoor air quality. I learned about particles and the influence they have on indoor air quality. And eventually I learned about mold as well. So my caution is if you're gonna to talk to people about indoor air quality, learn what indoor air quality is. Mold is not indoor air quality. It's only a small piece of it. Well said, Travis West. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Well, I really appreciate it. And we had no problem filling that hour now, did we? <laughs> no, that's true. Great job, Travis. Thanks for this week's guest, Travis West. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. And next week, we'll be back with part two of the Bob Blockinger, Roland Vieira Moisture Mob Case Study Show. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 